left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Any operator is going to have something go wrong with their properties, but don't measure that. Like, let's just say you have an economic downturn or you have something go wrong. It's how the sponsor gets the most out of that opportunity when it goes bad. Those external environments come in. It's how does that operator do better and how do they getting them more than what they deserve given the economic circumstances surrounding that invest, that particular property or that investment. And that's, I think, really critical for an investor to look at. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. I'm really pleased today to have Ryan Gibson with us. He is a co-founder and CIO of Spartan Investment Group, a self-storage syndicator and preferred partner for left field investors. Spartan has almost $500 million in assets under management and 54 facilities that operate under the FreeUp brand. Ryan, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Very excited to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me. Well, you guys have been a great partner and we really appreciate that. The way I like to start out is if you can talk about your journey, like how did you get into syndication, self-storage, real estate in general? What's your financial journey to get yourself where you are right now? Yeah, that's a really fun process. And as you mentioned today, we have about a half a billion of assets under management today. But where did it start? It really just started with an entrepreneurial drive to build a business that could sustain being vertically integrated and have all these assets and investors and it really started with my business partner and I meeting in our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. as neighbors, and we became friends and started a business together. And I think the thing that really inspired us to work together was the fact that we're very risk adverse and we like to mitigate any risk possible. And we also were very focused on building a holistic company, not just doing a bunch of deals. And so that alignment really led us down this path and opened our curiosity to wanting to build some place that we really enjoyed working. And then we could also hire employees that really also enjoyed working at Spartan. And I think that's really kind of what fueled that passion. My background is an airline pilot. 
it's kind of interesting. I really love flying and I really enjoy the industry. So a lot of people are you don't like their nine to five or don't like their job and they're trying to kind of income replace. I'm in the same boat, but I would say I'm unique in that I like what I do in the airlines and I like flying airplanes. But what I really wanted to do is build legacy wealth and that financial freedom that is not really achievable necessarily in a normal career that an airline pilot would go through. So I wanted to build something that would last and sort of make money while I sleep. And that's why I focused on starting a business and kind of going that route. And it's been a lot of fun and really just passionate about serving the 100 employees that we have today and really excited to see our investors get great returns and invest in great projects and deliver projects that otherwise might go to a REIT to the normal day-to-day investor and allowing them to kind of own a piece in each project. Okay. So explain a little bit more, like how'd you get into self-storage, right? You're an airline pilot, you're hanging out with your neighbor buddy and you guys say, hey, let's start a business. I mean, no offense, but probably the last thing I would think of is, hey, let's go start a big self-storage company. So how do you get there? Yeah. So again, risk mitigation, I think the first deals that we did were all residential. So we did multifamily development, we did condo development, we did single family new build homes. We started kind of flipping houses, kind of taking things down to the studs. And what we really liked about what we were doing was we were doing all new development, which takes out a lot of risk because if you're flipping a house, you don't know what you're going to find behind the walls. But if you know you're tearing it all the way down to the studs, you know that you're tearing it all the way down to the studs. There shouldn't be many surprises, if any. So we like the new construction. We really like new development. And we were good at finding properties that were difficult to entitle and get those positioned. But what we didn't like is where the market was headed. We didn't think that the residential space was going to be something that you're kind of doing short-term bets on in six months to 12 months, we can sell this house for X. And we really didn't like that short-term that we were making on assets. So we looked around the industry. We looked at multifamily, office, single family. We looked at the whole gamut. And the asset class that performed the best during the last four recessions was self-storage. And being risk-mitigated minded, so like Scott is a military vet, served in Iraqi freedom. If he makes bad decisions, people die. If I make bad decisions, people also die. So we're very risk-mitigated in that respect. And self-storage was unequivocally the best or one of the best performing asset classes during the last downturns that we've had in 08 and the last three or four recessions. So it struck us as a very recession resistant asset class or asset type. And so that's what we really liked about it. But the other thing about it is Scott will always joke. He hates people. He's actually a really people-minded person. He's really good with people, but we didn't want to kick anybody out of their dwelling. And storage, you don't have eviction moratoriums. You don't have lots of cabinets and turnover and people and evictions, and and you're not kicking somebody out of their dwelling. So we really like that. We had that aligned with our values where we're not having to go through removing somebody from their house. And to summarize, three E's, easy to own, easy to evict, easy to maintain. And so that gave us the asset type that we knew we could scale a company with, low risk or lower risk, and having the ease of operation so that we could completely vertically integrate our construction company into our Spartan brand, and then also our free up storage national brand, we knew that we could scale those two verticals and control the process, thereby mitigating a little bit of risk. Okay. That makes sense. So self-storage, I get how you picked it because of the recession-proof asset class, right? But it's also in the last five, 10 plus years, it's been one of the hottest asset classes in any economy, right? So why self-storage? Why is it doing so well? Why has it done so well? 
Well, the last 10 years have been very interesting. I think a lot of investors, institutional investors have come into the space. A lot more people are lending. It's driving down cap rates. It's driving down interest. It's drying up the opportunities to buy. So we've had to really look hard for the right projects. I mean, we've had to develop a lot of relationships with sellers, portfolios especially, and we've had to look off market to find really well-vetted opportunities to get into the space because it is a hot space and you want to make money when you buy. So we want to make sure that we're buying something that's got below market value to it and isn't all kind of picked over. So we've stuck to the value add approach. We want to find a property that we're buying on a per square foot basis lower than what the market is trading at. And we want to buy a property that is below market rents. So let's just say the rents on a 10 by 10 are $100 a month and the market is charging 130 or 140 a month. We want to find that because the industry is getting overheated. There is a lot of competition. There is a lot of people buying and it's pushing down cap rates and making it harder to find that right project. Great example. We have put out an offer every single week this year on average where it's May 11th today. We put an offer out every single week. This time last year, we had already bought like four or five properties. And this year we haven't bought anything yet because the market is hot and we have to look at more opportunities to find what fits our criteria because our criteria has not changed. We're in a rising interest rate environment and more money is pouring into the space. So we want to be really careful about what we buy and make sure that we are controlling our risk and what we do to make sure that we have good projects for our investors. Yeah, and you mentioned value add, right? So I know some of the value add is you sell locks and you get U-Haul in there, but what are the best value add options for self-storage to really push valuations? Yeah. So I would say the one thing is you've got to come in and have a facility that is well-occupied that is below market rents. So like I said, you come in, maybe the owner's got 100% occupancy with a wait list out the door and he's charging $100 a month for a 10 by 10, the market you go mystery shop every single competitor and find that they're all charging 130 for a similar size property and everybody's full. So now you know, okay, I've got demand out the door and I can bring my rents to market, not increase the market rents, but just bring the rents to where they should be on that. It, that type of property is difficult to find that mom and pop owner that just hasn't really been paying attention to the market because maybe they have a really low basis in the property that allows us to come in and sort of tighten things up. The second thing is adding additional units. We do a market study where we could look at the demand within that three-mile drive time and benchmark that against surrounding cities to determine that, hey, there's a, actually a surplus of demand by X amount per square feet. So now we know that we can add on additional units. So we have a lot of different things happening there. We have data scientists and researchers that are finding that data for us. And then we have the construction company that focuses on the entitlement aspect where they can look at land and know how much we can actually physically build there and what the cost would be so that when we come in, we know what we're doing. We know how much value we can add in additional square footage. We also know how much demand there is in the market and we can build those units ourselves and have that kind of all in-house as part of our due diligence process. Third thing is tenant insurance. We go in, we require every single storage customer to have tenant insurance. And they don't have to buy our tenant insurance, but if they do, we make revenue off that. Great example, you might buy a 300 unit facility. There's no tenant insurance in place. We take over, we require it. We might make six to $10 a unit if they use our insurance. And so that's instant $1,800 a month 
on revenue coming in at no additional expense other than just requiring the insurance. Those are probably the three main pillars of value that can be driven in the shortest period of time. Interesting. So when you're talking about the value add, when you're putting new units in, it seems like there's always conveniently land that you can build on. How do you find the deals that have that land nearby or does the current owner already own the land and they just haven't done anything with it? It seems it's interesting that in a lot of your deals, there's this big plot of land there that you can build some new units on. So how do you find those intentionally and why is there always that empty land there ready for you to take advantage of? Yeah, so it could be a number of different reasons. I'll give you one example. We bought a property back in about, I think, 2018, 2019, and it was from a seller that was about 85 years old. And he'd owned this property for 30 years, and there was a half acre in the back that we could expand about 14,000 square feet on. And it was not an easy development. You had to go through a site development plan. Well, first of all, we had to rezone it from residential to commercial. Then we had to go through a site development plan. Then we had to get our building permits. And then we even had to use dynamite to blast the granite to put in our foundations because we built this in the mountains of Colorado. And so from a one-man band, mom-and-pop operator who's owned this property for 30 years, and he's been full with a wait list, and maybe he has a very low cost basis in the property, he's not too excited about doing all that stuff. (laughs) Hiring an architect, hiring a civil engineer, hiring a finding dynamite at an Air Force base to bring the property and blow up granite. Now, that's an extreme example. But that's kind of one side of it. The other side of it is maybe they're just not well capitalized. Maybe they don't have the means to go and go through the headache, or maybe they just don't want to go through the headache. So there's always some unique thing that eliminates an owner from being able to do it. Or maybe they just add it on and their comfort level with adding on even more units is not there. And then sometimes we find a lot of deals where the owner says, oh yeah, you can build a bunch of stuff in the back. We do our due diligence and you can't. So sometimes you see there might be a big gas line easement or there might be setbacks or there might be restrictions on what you can build in that market. So whether it be zoning or requiring a conditional use permit. So I think people think that, oh, you can just build these things everywhere. And it's really just not true. There's a lot of moratoriums out there and zoning restrictions. And we do a lot in Texas. And we've even found that sometimes in Texas, you have to kind of jump through a bit of hoops to get the property constructed and built. So many, many different reasons why people don't do it. And sometimes they just don't see the opportunity to build the additional units and lease it up. Interesting. So as you know, our community is built up passive investors that are actively investing in these syndications. And when we try to analyze the deal to figure out, okay, is this something we want to invest in? The default is always multifamily because that's where most of us start. And now we have to transfer our knowledge to self-storage. So A couple of things that I look for in multifamily, I'm looking at the rent increases in the pro forma, the economic vacancy, and the taxes. Those are the first three things I look at. So if I'm a passive investor, I'm looking at self-storage, not from underwriting it ground up like you would, but from a passive investor perspective, what are a few things that I should be looking at, a few metrics or something that I should look at when I'm evaluating a self-storage deal? I love the question. Five things. Go to the annual P&L on an underwriting file and look at five things. One, gross revenue change year over year. Two, property tax increases. Three, insurance increases. Four, expense to gross income ratio. And five, cap rate. Those are the five things that I would quickly scan to either throw a deal out or continue digging in deeper, right? There's a lot of other things that go into this, but those are the five things that I would come to the table with looking. So let's go through them one by one. Gross revenue. I would look at what the operator has underwritten the change to be 
year over year in gross revenue. That's basically increasing your collections. If it's more than 6% every single year, I would ask why. Might not be a bad reason, but I'd ask why. So for example, in the first year, they may have a market study that shows the rents are those $130 a month units, like I mentioned earlier, and you're only at 100. So you're just going to raise rents to market. Doesn't happen overnight, even though we're on a 30-day lease, I would give myself 18 to 24 months to do that. So you have plenty of runway. The second thing I would look for in the subsequent years, if there's more than a 6% increase in revenue, I would ask, where is that coming from? Is it coming from bringing rents to the existing market that is well-occupied and well-documented in a market study? Or is it just the operator thinking that the rents are just going to keep growing? And if the operator thinks the rents are just going to keep growing, I would really question why they think that, because that is the crystal ball that none of us have, right? That would one thing I would really suss out. The second thing is property taxes. When you buy a property, you get reassessed and your property taxes go up. If I don't see property taxes doubling over the hold period within the first five years, I don't think that they've properly accounted for property tax reassessments. That's a big deal in today's market. That will not only kill your valuation, it'll also kill your cash flow. So make sure that they've accounted for it in the underwriting. The third thing, property insurance. Whether you believe in global warming or not, I'm not here to debate that. <laughs> the reality is, is insurance companies are experiencing more weather events than they've ever experienced before. And that's increasing their claims and that is increasing their cost. So I would want to see insurance going up 20 to 35% over the whole period. And I'd also want to know that they've worked with a broker that has provided an A-rated carrier specific to the industry and they've already gotten a quote per square foot. Really want to dig into the insurance to make sure that they have that dialed in. Fourth thing, expense to gross income ratio. So if you make $1 of revenue, how much money and expenses as a percentage of that $1 have you accounted for? So for example, if you make a dollar in storage, it should cost you 35 to 40 cents. That's typically normal, right? So I would want to see a going in expense to gross income ratio of about 35 to 40%. So you're typically spending about 40 cents for every dollar you're earning. That can get better over time because if you're increasing your revenue, obviously your expenses aren't going to, they're going to go up, but they're not going to go up at the rate your revenue typically goes up. But I wouldn't mind if that number shrunk a little bit, maybe down into the mid to low 30s, but I'd want to see it around 40% in the first year. And lastly, cap rate. As you know, Jim, really well in, in any deal, you can play with the cap rate and that will derive returns, right? I can underwrite everything at an eight cap and make things look really bad on the exit, or I can underwrite everything at a four cap and make it really look great, right? So here's what we do. We don't have a crystal ball. We don't know where cap rates are going. So every single month, we just show our cap rate getting worse in our projected hold period. So if we go in at a five cap or a six cap or whatever we're going in at, we're going to end it at a higher cap rate for that project. Specifically, Jim, the deal that you're invested in, in Tyler and Longview, we're showing that exit cap rate at 6.91%. That is a very conservative estimate based on the fact that that would trade today below a five cap in today's market. But we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next year, right? So we need to account for that in our conservatism to be good underwriters. And everybody will tell you they're a conservative underwriter. Like, oh, I'm very conservative, right? It's kind of like, you're not doing your job if you don't say that, something like that. What you really have to do is, as a passive investor, understand, okay, what is my kind of quick, broad checklist on saying, okay, how can I tell if that's a true statement or not? And those are the five things that I would look for on any self-storage deal and probably really any transaction. 
Yeah. That's phenomenal. And if you're listening to this podcast right now, I would hit the rewind button <laughs> and get out a pen and paper because I was scribbling notes because those are perfect. Those are great metrics, right? Because as a passive investor, I'm going to screen the sponsor and get comfortable. And Spartan is that for me. I'm completely comfortable with Spartan. I'm in a few deals, but now I want to underwrite each deal just a little bit. I'm trusting you to do all the heavy lifting. And then I want to come in with my five things and I'm just going to go boom, boom, boom. You got them all. Okay. I'm probably good to go. So this was fantastic. One question on the cap rate, when I'm doing multifamily, you typically see most sponsors that I deal with, at least they do the exit cap rate about a half point above what they feel like they're going in at. So are you usually more than a half? Are you like, is your rule of thumb 1% or do you have a rule of thumb for that? It goes up. I don't want to quote what we go up at because it could be different for each opportunity. Because think about it, if you buy something at a seven cap in today's market, well, guess what? You got a sweet deal. It might actually go down, right? It might actually say, well, that's actually going to go down. I would say that in any case, I don't think we've ever not underwritten something that goes up. And I would say at least 25, if not 75 basis points. But I wouldn't be too hard and fast on that. Because it really just depends on what you go in at, right? If you go in at a five and you end up at a six, that's pretty conservative. If you go in at a seven and end up at a seven and a half, well, guess what? You're being really conservative. And it really depends on the asset type too, where it's located, how many units it is. Then really the answer is it just depends. I wouldn't be too much of a stickler. I think my five things that I look at in an underwriting file are mostly just the things that lead me to understand the business plan so I can go into a deal eyes wide open. That's phenomenal. That, that's really great advice because people feel more comfortable with multifamily. And then when you branch out into these other assets, it's hard to know how do I figure out if this deal is something I want to pursue further. So that's great advice. I really appreciate that. And again, comparing everything to multifamily, and I want to talk about the exit of a self-storage deal. You know, in multifamily, a lot of people now, they're rehabbing some or most of the units, and then they leave some meat on the bone for the next owner, right? So how do you decide to exit a cash flowing deal? And do you have kind of where you do all the rehab or do you leave something for the next person? Yeah, great question. So yeah, I think typically what's relatable in multifamily is someone's going to buy a 300 unit apartment building. They're going to take a hundred units offline. They're going to throw new kitchen packages in, and then they see the market rents to be higher than that, right? That's your typical multifamily play. And then they get to the point where they got the rents to market and their units online. And then here comes a buyer who just wants something really well done. It's time to exit, right? That's kind of the idea. Summarized in one word, we want optionality. We're not beholden to sell at X cap rate. We're not beholden to sell one-off deals. We're not beholden to sell it as a portfolio or broken up as portfolios. We have so many options and what we can do. Great example. We have a facility in Fort Worth, Texas, where we bought it for 1.35 million. We put about three or $400,000 into the deal, fixed it up. We paved the units. We took it from 14% occupancy to 95% occupancy, increased the value to over $4 million. And we did a refinance and 100% of the investor's capital got returned to them, right? Plus the cash flow. Plus now they've got all their money back out of the deal and they still own the cash flow that comes off that property and the additional equity that the property gets when it sells. At this time, that deal, yeah, it's a five-year hold in our target projected hold time, but they've got all their money back. So really at this point, we're not forced to do anything. We have options. And so I think it's really important to know when you're going in that the operator has the option to pivot in a lot of different directions. That's how we've set up our shop. 
The other thing that we've done is we've created a portfolio nationwide. We're across nine states right now, 54 store locations, comprising over 25,000 units, well over 3 million square feet. So we have a big portfolio and we are kind of got a target on our back for someone to buy us. So someone to buy our whole portfolio and groups have already sat down and said, hey, we want to buy the whole thing or we want to break it apart and buy pieces of it for a compressed cap rate. While that's an option, it's not the only option. And it's an option that presents an extreme best case scenario, which we're kind of got the ability to do that. And then we've got stuff that we buy that we really don't want. And I know that's kind of a funny thing to say. Why did you buy it? Well, sometimes when we buy a portfolio, there's things in it we don't want. Like for example, we have a chicken wing store in Tampa, right? <laughs> or just north of Tampa. It came with a self-storage facility and like was like, hey, you're going to buy this with the chicken wings on it or we're going to sell it to somebody else, right? Or one time we bought a deal that had a car wash on it and we really had no interest in the car wash. It wasn't one of the good car washes. It was one of the crappier ones. And so we said, hey, we're going to buy this thing and we're going to sub parcel the car wash and we're going to sell that. And then we're going to return investors capital. So I think it really just our bread and butter business plan is to make our investors as much as possible and sell when it's correct to sell at the right cap rate and valuation. And I think generally what we're doing is we're taking investors along on the value add cycle. So we're buying something, we're adding a ton of value to it, or we're getting it below market value. And then we're selling it when it's time to sell, when it's a good time to take our risk off the table, or we might be recapitalizing them through some kind of refinance or partial sale. Hey, Left Fielders, this is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. It's really interesting because one of the most important things right now, I think there's so many questions in the economy and what's going to happen and can assets keep inflating and everything. And one of the things I look for is the ability to pivot your exit, right? That you have multiple exit plans for an asset so that if things don't go according to your pro forma, don't go according to plan through no fault of your own, you have a different exit. And I think that's really important. And I like the way you just said that. That gives you know, a lot of confidence knowing that you can go multiple different ways. That's really helpful. I want to pivot here to sponsors, right? So when we're trying to find a self-storage sponsor, how would you vet a sponsor? What kind of questions would a passive investor ask a sponsor to know that, hey, maybe this is one that I want to dig deeper into? Sure. So I always say the same thing when you're asking, so asking for referrals is a tricky thing because we all know that if somebody asked you for a referral, you wouldn't give them somebody that you didn't like or didn't like you, right? You'd probably give somebody that would speak highly of you. So what I would do is whenever I ask for referrals, I have a strategy in doing so because I invest passively as well. I'm in over 10 different syndications. And when I'm usually interviewing an operator, I'll say, can you provide me with an example of your worst deal? And you might belabor on the worst deal you ever did and what happened and things like that. Like we had a property, an RV park that got wiped out in an F1 tornado. That was pretty bad. When the operator gets done kind of describing that worst case scenario, I would say, would you mind providing me with a referral from that investment? Right? Because that person might go, oh, okay. 
So then you can ask the operator or ask that investor, hey, how did it go when that F1 tornado happened and that deal didn't go so hot? And the investor will tell you how the operator responded and performed. That's one thing. And then I would give them a little bit of a softball and say, hey, I understand a lot of investors reinvest and they've invested in every deal. You said that a lot of people reinvest. Would you mind giving me the investor that's invested in over 75% of your offerings and kind of get the story from them? What do you like about these guys, right? And then the last type of investor that I would ask for is give me an investor who's only invested in you one time. So they invested in one deal and they've never invested with you again. Because I know that we're not talking about self-storage specifics right now, but I do like the soft touch stuff because somebody could gee whiz you on, they could have a self-storage podcast and they could have a big social media following and they could be on stage and they could be the perceived self-storage expert. But really what it boils down to is they should understand the business that they're getting into and the experience that that investor has had with that group is really critical to understanding if you're going to like the experience. And what I like to say is things are going to go wrong with our properties, 100%. And any operator is going to have something go wrong with their properties. But don't measure that, like, let's just say you have an economic downturn or you have something go wrong. It's how the sponsor gets the most out of that opportunity when it goes bad. Those external environments come in. It's how does that operator do better and how do they getting the more than what they deserve given the economic circumstances surrounding that invest that particular property or that investment. And that's, I think, really critical for an investor to look at. People get infatuated by the returns. They get infatuated by somebody they heard on stage or listen to on a podcast or whatever. But really it's about, hey, let me talk to people that have experienced you to try to see if I'm a good fit for your operation. That, that'd be one thing. And the other thing is you can take a risk with an inexperienced operator, but just know that you're taking a risk. And if you do that, you should probably be getting an outsized reward for it, right? Like an outsized split or an outsized return or something like that. But I really like the operators that have been in business for a few years and have a portfolio and can kind of have that scale where they have a team. They're not outsourcing everything. I would be fearful property management in our industry is just a strategy to acquire your property. And on one token, you can say, well, that's a good thing because you got a buyer lined up. And Or on another hand, you can say, well, the buyer controls your revenue. So is that the best situation? Because they could artificially throttle your revenue or dethrottle it or pull it back, right? And then you get a bet. So I like the vertical integrated companies. I like the companies that do the whole thing. I like to see operators that know how to build it, know how to operate it, and know how to find them and good opportunities that have investors that speak highly of them. So it's kind of a long-winded answer, but that'd be my answer to that. That was a fantastic answer. I mean, I've gotten away from asking for referrals because like you said, I ask for a referral and I just get whoever their favorite customers are. And the way you phrased, like today I was having a conversation with someone on the forum for Investor Forum. And I was saying that I had one sponsor, the deal went bad and the sponsor handled it horribly. And then I had another sponsor, the deal went bad and the sponsor handled it beautifully. And guess which one I'm going to invest in again, right? And if that second sponsor used me as a referral, I would say, man, the deal didn't go the way they wanted. It wasn't their fault. And they just killed it, right? They fixed it. Everything was great. And in our community, we now use each other to find sponsors, right? A sponsor recommended by someone you know, like, and trust who's invested with them. But now with the way you've asked for referrals in a new way, it really get you quality information. And I just think that's brilliant. So I really like that answer. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. I want to switch again. There's a lot of new build apartments going up everywhere, right? And they always seem now 
to have a self-storage facility on the property. Why is that? Is it becoming overbuilt? Or are these just the like class A apartments have the self-storage near them? Is that, are you noticing that? And are you concerned that self-storage is peaking? Yeah. So you can't really say that self-storage is peaking. It's hard to say that blanket statement like, oh, storage is in a bubble or storage is peaking or look at all these charts and graphs and data. Storage is a hyper-local market dependent. So storage may be in a recession or storage may be in a bubble, but it might not be in a bubble in a market that has excess demand. And when you talk about markets, people might say, hey, Ryan, how's the Houston market for storage? I have no idea. I'll tell you that in this specific main and main address or this specific location or this specific submarket, it's doing exceptionally well. Because even if you're in a recession or economy and you think people are going to move out because they can't pay, well, if you're the only self-storage facility in that market, guess what? You have excess demand and you're going to absorb that in your property regardless of what the economy is doing. So it really depends on how well vetted your specific location and the specific Submarket is. I'll say, like Denver, if you want to talk about a market that I would tend to say is not a great market for storage, I would say Denver. But we have a property in Denver that's doing quite well. And it's just because of where it's located and its surrounding competitors. So, really, just depends. Making blanket statements like that is misleading. And it may really depend on where we are. For example, we just built a property just south of Seattle. And guess what? There's moratoriums in all the surrounding cities for that property. And so I'm not saying that it's going to make it recession-proof or anything like that, but there is a surplus of demand and there's restrictions on any new properties coming in. So it's dependent on where it is. I also know areas of Seattle where I wouldn't build because it's overbuilt, right? So to say that it's one thing or another so assertively, I think is a bit misleading. Yeah. And so now you're moving to a fund model, right? And we're seeing a number of other sponsors and syndicators doing that as well. And I was always preferring one asset so I could evaluate the asset. And my thinking has changed and evolved as I learn and have more experience. And now I kind of like the fund model for a sponsor like Spartan, where I might want to invest in two or three deals a year. Now I can just invest that same cash in one deal. So can you talk a little bit about why the fund model, why you're doing that and what the benefits might be to a passive investor of the fund model over the single asset deal? Yeah. So I'm going to go a little deeper than I normally do on the benefits. So long answer. So just stop me anytime. But the great thing about a fund is number one, I'll give you a great example. Right now we have like 15 or $14 million sitting in bank accounts for each deal. And when you think about the efficiency of that capital, and this is in the eyes of the investor, right? So you put in money into a specific one single syndication deal. Well, you may have to equity inject so much to start your construction draws to expand the facility in the future. So that cash has to be raised from investors and it has to sit in that account and be inefficient until that money is deployed when you're ready to build. And it might take a year to build or two years to build because you got to go through all the permitting and entitlement for that expansion. So that cash sits and sits and sits. And you spread that across all of our properties, that one specific example, and you end up with all this dead cash. It's just sitting there doing nothing. And we went round and round on if we could invest it or where we'd put it or whatever. And it's just the management of it would be atrocious. So what this means to the investor, your money is now more diluted because you have to raise more for it to sit there and there's less distributions to go around when you do that inefficient cash. 
when you go into a fund model, every dollar that's going in is being better utilized across more assets, lowering your risk or spreading out your risk and potentially creating the opportunity for higher returns. Whereas if you're doing one deal, you're putting all your eggs in one basket on that one project and that one deal. And here's the reality, Jim, I know you're above average or way above average, like doing due diligence on a syndication or on a specific property. I'm just going to spill the beans here. We do our best to vet a deal. And sometimes we're so right, we do better than we thought. And sometimes we're just about on point. But the reality is, is you can't know everything about a deal before you buy it. And if you're a passive investor, you're definitely going to be way behind where we are. You're not going to the properties. Maybe you do. You're not going through every single property inspection. You're not going through every single title report. You're not in all of our due diligence calls. You can't possibly know every single thing about that asset before you buy it. And that's the inherent risk you take. Now with a fund, what you can do is you can vet the operator and you can do it when that operator is not trying to pitch you something. So I would say if an operator is doing a fund, you've got time to go vet the operator, go to their office, meet their property ops team, meet their construction team, sit down with the principal, see how they interact with each other. Do your due diligence on the jockey and not necessarily the horse because you're really banking on their ability to find a deal that's well vetted that they're making a decision to buy. And so I think trying to pick the random deals, and I've talked to a lot of investors about this year, and it's like you try to pick the deals. And I even asked an investor the other day, he's like really disappointed we're doing the fund and he wants to do it deal by deal. And I said, well, I said, you did about most of the deals we did last year. Why didn't you do this one deal? He said, well, I didn't have funds at the time to do it. And I said, what do you have done it? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, if you were in a fund, you would have participated in that deal. And by the way, we just don't go out. He made his own fund. Yeah. We just don't go out and buy whatever we want. We have a specific targeted bucket that we can buy in. And I think that's why I think a lot of people, they tend to stray away from it. Here's the other thing, K1s, right? We have an investor right now that's getting 19 K1s for 2021. That's a lot of K1s just for investing in every single one of our syndications. In a fund, you get 1K1. It's a streamlined process and the timing issues go away. You don't have to, oh, well, I'm getting 50K and I want to do this deal. I don't really like that deal. I want to do that. So you're getting better timing. You're spreading out risk. You're spreading out cash flow risk. Like Jim, for example, you've got one deal that's producing a nearly a 10% cash on cash paid monthly, but you might be in something else that maybe pays 4%. Well, the blend in that is 7, 8%, really, depending on how much asset or how much money you have allocated to each one. So I think you get the good, the great outstanding out of the park deals. And you also get the second, third base hits and you make a really well-rounded portfolio that does really well. So that's kind of my, uh, my reasoning internally. I know this doesn't apply to the investors, but buying self-storage is difficult, not only because there's not a lot of it to buy, but because the assets are so small. Multifamily, you might buy a multifamily building that's worth 50 million to $100 million. If you found that type of project in storage, you're finding a very unique opportunity. So to stand up these syndications every single time we have a new opportunity is really inefficient on cost and internal time. Now I'm spending my time setting up an offering versus spending my time doing more strategic things. So with a fund, it just takes the pressure off and it's just a streamlined approach. So long answer, but... (laughs) No, that was great. That was great information. And I had just a couple of follow-ups. You had said earlier that you had found four or five properties by this time last year, and this year you're not finding anything. So now you're doing this fund, you're raising all this money. Where are you going to find these properties? Yeah. So we actually do have $100 million in our pipeline, but we haven't closed yet. Just to clarify, we haven't closed anything yet this year, but we launched the fund about three weeks ago. 
And we do have deals lined up that we are going to be closing on here in the next few weeks. So yes, same way we've always found deals. And I think there's always this old adage, oh, well, when you do a fund, you're going to be lazy about what you buy and you're going to feel the pressure to buy something. And that's just simply not true. In our fund documents, what we do is we say that your prep starts accruing. This second we buy something and we use your funds, your prep starts accruing, your returns will start accruing thereafter or be distributed thereafter. But in this case, if your funds sit for more, we have a 90-day maximum where you would either start recruiting the prep or we have to send your money back. We're under no pressure. We're not going to go out there and the principals, myself included, we sign on these loans. We're not going to go out there and just buy whatever. I mean, we have to make sure that we're adding value and hitting the targeted cash flow projections in the fund. So it's a tough time to buy, but we're not going to lower our, our standards in that respect. Okay. And then I hate to ask this question, but you mentioned K-1s and I would get a bunch of crap from my listeners if I didn't ask about the state issue of filing taxes in multiple states. Because again, in our forum at Left Field Investors, we've been going back and forth on, is it a big issue? Is it a small issue for the passive investor? And my thought is I've invested in funds before and I've never really had issues with state taxes. And if I did, it's a small portion of the overall revenue I'm receiving the distribution. So it's probably going to be less than the minimum required to file a tax, a state tax. But can you talk briefly, do you think that'll be an issue for investors that they'll have multiple state taxes to file when doing these funds? Yes, but not before I give a disclaimer that I'm not giving any tax or legal advice. I'm not a CPA. Do your own due diligence. Jim and I are just having a friendly conversation about what might happen. So. Yes, thank you for that caveat. <laughs> I should have said it. I'm glad you did. <laughs> so do not take this as tax advice. And I'm dead serious. I joke around about this, but I tell my team, you're a walking disclaimer because you can't give this kind of advice. Here's the issue. Let's talk about a composite return versus just a return, a regular return. I don't know. I guess that would be the thing. So composite return rolls the tax return obligation by state up to the sponsor level, and the sponsor will pay any state and local taxes that are required in the state niches. So we're currently not doing a composite return, but we're exploring. We really want to do a composite return. We're trying. But here's the issue that we're running into. If you file a composite return for on that investor's behalf for the state that the fund buys an asset in, you're only allowed to file one per state. So how do we know that Jim doesn't have another one in that state. Well, now we have to do this. We have to go on this fact-finding mission to figure out, do you have other investments in the state? And we have to marry that together. So that's the last logistical thing that we're trying to uncover. But the answer to your question on a, no investor left behind here, let's be as basic as we can. If you get a K-1 from a fund and they don't file a composite return, you might be obligated to file in certain states that require you to have to pay state tax on that investment. I think the reality to that is it's going to be very nominal, if nothing at all, because you typically have enough depreciation to offset any gains you would have anyway. So at the end of the day, I don't think it's a big deal. But again, talk to your own CPA about it. And we can buy assets in any... We don't have any state restrictions. We don't buy in California. We don't buy in Hawaii or Alaska just because of proximity. And we don't usually buy any, any New England states. But Texas, Florida, Georgia, Tennessee... The Carolinas, Kentucky, those are kind of the states that we're likely to invest in. And you might be subject to doing that. So we're looking into that because we want to provide the best solution to the investors, but we just don't want to create something that we can't manage. So we're looking into that now. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a good answer. And man, this has been packed with awesome information. I really appreciate that. The 
last question, I guess technically the second to last question I asked, what's a great podcast that you listen to? It can be real estate or airline pilot related or entertainment, whatever you like, but give me a podcast or two that you'd like to listen to. I really enjoy listening to a variety of podcasts now. I'll tell you what I used to listen to and kind of where I'm at today. I kind of started with the Bigger Pockets podcast. I really like the Real Estate Guys radio podcast. I listen to that quite a bit. I do enjoy listening to any podcast really that are specific to what I'm trying to learn. I kind of use my podcast app as like a Google, right? Like, oh, I want to learn about startups or learn about corporate culture or things like that. So there's a lot of just random podcasts like TED Talks or Planet Money, where I like to kind of think outside of the space. I'm more of a book guy. We read a book about once a month at Spartan at least. And I'm more into books. And the last book that I read that I really enjoyed was No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix. So if listeners want to get in touch with you or learn how they can invest in the fund, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, you can go to spartan-investors.com and click on the Spartan Storage Fund 1. And then there's an intake form that will get you in touch with our team on that intake. If you want to reach out to me on LinkedIn, Ryan Gibson, CIO, Spartan Investment Group. Or if you want to email me, I'm at ryan at spartan-investors.com. Perfect. Thank you. We'll put that all in the show notes. And as I said, this has been an awesome episode. Learned so much. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. And thank you to Spartan for being a great partner, a preferred partner for left field investors. And we appreciate all that you do. Thanks, Jim. We would like to introduce one of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, to the left field investors community. At Ashcroft, they focus on capital preservation while still having upside potential through their value-add funds. They are proud to announce their second fund, the Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2, is now open to investors. The Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2 has been created with one singular purpose in mind, to reduce risk to investors. The Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2 will continue to use the same conservative business plan Ashcroft was founded with acquiring quality multifamily assets and offering value-add opportunity in strong performing markets throughout the country. To learn more about Ashcroft Capital's investment criteria or about the markets and properties they are targeting, please download their latest AVAF2 Frequently Asked Questions Guide at ashcroftcapital.com slash leftfield. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash leftfield. This is one of those episodes where I will be listening to it a couple of times. There was some really good stuff in there from Ryan. What a great job he did talking about why he chose self-storage. It's one of the best asset classes through the last four recessions. And then he kind of came up with the easy, right? Easy to own, easy to evict, and easy to maintain. And that's some of the things that make this such a great asset class. And then when you buy it, what do you do with it? Value add, right? And I was thinking throw in, sell some locks, get the U-Hauls in. But his value add, raise rents to market. That's pretty easy. You got to buy them under market to get that, but that's one of them. But the new units, he's always adding new units where he can onto the properties. And then tenant insurance, like he said, that might add 1800 bucks a month, but that's revenue. And when you increase the revenue, then you're going to increase the value of the property. So that's great. And then he really killed it when I asked the question about what are some things a passive investor can look at to determine if this is a deal you want to invest in? He had five things. Gross revenue to make sure that it's not increasing at huge rates, that it's reasonable, and there's reasons behind it, both of those. 
And then property tax, that's the same thing I do with multifamily is I make sure that, hey, the property taxes have to be higher in the pro forma than actual because they're gonna reevaluate the value. And then insurance costs, because all these weather events are happening, insurers are increasing the prices drastically. So you have to make sure that hits the pro forma. That was awesome to know. And then expenses to gross revenue, he said 35 to 40%. That's another thing that we use in multifamily. So that's nice that that translates. And then cap rate, same thing where most people, 50 basis points on the cap rate for multifamily. And he kind of had a hard time pinning it down exactly what it should be. It's case dependent, but gave some really great advice. So I love those things. And then I always, when the market is like this, everyone's nervous, inflation, there's war, there's all kinds of things that are going on. And he has options to exit. And that's what you want. If the business plan doesn't work out because of things out of your control or even things in your control, as long as you have multiple ways to exit, you're going to be okay. Most likely you're going to be better off than someone who just has one plan. And if it doesn't work, you're done. So I really like the way he said that. One of the best things he said was the referrals, right? I was done asking sponsors for referrals because now, as I've talked about many times, I only invest with a new sponsor if they're recommended to me by someone in my community who I know, like, and trust who's already invested with them. And that puts me way ahead because I have that trust. Because if you ask for referrals, what are they going to give you? Their best customers. But Ryan decided, hey, I want a referral from a customer in your worst deal. Or I want a referral from a customer who's in 75% of your deals. Or I want a referral from a customer that only invested once. So now you're getting referrals, but you're not just asking the sponsor, hey, give me someone to talk to that's invested with you. And then they're going to give you their number one guy or gal. He's asking for very specific referrals. And that's where you can get some quality information. So you add that to how we already look for sponsors by using our community. And now you're digging deep and you're really going to find quality sponsors that way. So that was phenomenal. And then the last thing I want to say about Spartan is they are preferred partner and they do have this self-storage fund and they've given better terms to left field investors. So we're really excited about that. And if you are a member of our community and you decide to invest in this fund, just make sure that you fill out the form that we've sent out to our community so that they know you're a left fielder and that way they'll give you those increased, those better terms as well. Again, love this episode. I'm going to listen to it a few times, certain to hit the rewind button so I can take some notes. I hope you enjoyed it too. And we'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.